Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Well, welcome everyone to uh, Surgical Readings from SRGS, and we're delighted to have back with us Dr. Britt Tonneson, who's Associate Professor of Surgery in the Department of Surgery and also the Division of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Yale University School of Medicine. Britt, welcome. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, Rick. I'm delighted to be back to discuss some exciting topics, both mesenteric ischemia as well as renovascular disease. Well, we're delighted to have you. And of course, these are important topics. So let's get right into it. As in many things in medicine, there's an acute and chronic form. And I wondered if you would tell us a little about the different types of acute mesenteric ischemia. I think it's important to distinguish between the various types of acute mesenteric ischemia, uh, because that really can affect the, the treatment algorithm. So there's really three arterial types and one venous type. Most commonly, embolic acute mesenteric ischemia is the issue. And this is usually as a result of a cardioembolic embolus, such as someone who has been in atrial fibrillation and has not been on anticoagulation. Uh, as another example, someone who has had like a recent myocardial infarction may have mural thrombus in a hypokinetic area of the left ventricular. And so this clot forms in the heart and then embolizes downstream and oftentimes may lodge in the origin of the um, superior mesenteric artery. This is because of the acute angle that that artery comes off the aorta. It really is a, a ideal location for an embolus to lodge. You can think of it like a pinball machine. There are certain uh, shoots and certain areas of the pinball machine where your ball may selectively more, more uh, lean towards going, depending on how skilled you are with the pinball machine. And, and in this situation with an embolus, the the proximal superior mesenteric artery is one of those locations. Uh, the nuance of this is that the emboli tend to lodge a few centimeters actually from the origin and they land at a branch point and they often may spare that first jejunal uh, branch. The other main type of acute mesenteric arterial ischemia is a thrombotic problem. Okay, so this is due to thrombosis of a previously atherosclerotic uh, blood vessel. And this patient may have a history of smoking in particular is very common in this situation or other atherosclerotic disease in the lower extremities or in the heart. And what happens in these situations is that the stenosis at the origin of the SMA becomes so stenotic that it eventually just thromboses off. And so this, this can be picked up sometimes by the history. The patient may um, be thin, may have had weight loss, and may have had antecedent history of chronic mesenteric ischemic symptoms that we'll discuss in a little bit. So I think distinguishing between embolic and thrombotic really 
is important because it, it again affects the management, which we'll, we'll talk about next. There's a third type of arterial acute mesenteric ischemia, and this is non-occlusive ischemia. And this occurs when there's no occlusion in the SMA, but rather a severely, um, severely uh, vasospasmed um, distal branches of the SMA as a result of uh, pressors in a critically ill patient or sometimes severely decreased cardiac output can also cause this. And this, uh, this has a generally a, a very poor prognosis given the underlying issues. Well, I think you've, you've really uh, reviewed it beautifully. And of course, the important thing is uh, to recognize uh, these various forms. And I wonder if you would just give us a, a little idea of the way these present before we get into the management. Sure. So I think that the classic description of pain out of proportion to exam is really something that still rings true with this diagnosis. And the patient will complain of a constant uh, acute onset abdominal pain and, and just cannot get comfortable in any position. And as they progress to peritonitis, um, then they will develop peritoneal signs and, and may be more comfortable laying still, not, not moving around. And so when you examine these patients, they don't necessarily have peritonitis. In fact, it's, it's best if you catch it before peritonitis develops, because that means that the bowel is developing necrosis. Or by the time the patient has developed a severe lactate acidosis, the bowel may be non-salvageable at that point, and the mortality rate goes way up. So I think the history is very important. Again, also digging for any sort of history of other vascular issues or cardiac issues. Um, you know, for example, I mentioned the patient who may have had an MI and presents with a cardioembolic embolus. So digging for that history. Oh, a few days ago, I had, you know, chest pressure. I just didn't feel right. And I, you know, laid down for a few hours and I, then I felt better. And then suddenly comes in a few days later with this belly pain. So I think the history is, is awfully important. And then the examination, which again may show a benign abdomen, uh, which uh, gives you really a window of opportunity potentially to save this patient's life. Would we expect uh, venous thrombotic disease to present differently than the arterial thrombotic disease? Yeah, I would say that the venous tends to present a little less dramatically, more with this kind of constant abdominal uh, discomfort and, and fullness, and maybe sometimes associated with ascites. So a little bit more in, insidious, perhaps. This is also associated with a, a number of hypercoagulable states. So I think that the presentation is a little is nuanced in that effect. So is true in many things in medicine, we have to consider what we call the heuristic. We have to have that in our mind that this is happening before we even launch into uh, a workup. So tell us, once you've thought about the disease, you're thinking about acute mesenteric disease, how do we, how do we proceed from there? What kind of diagnostic studies uh, in leading to management? So I think if you have a suspicion for acute mesenteric ischemia, your best test is to get a stats, uh, CT uh, angiogram of the abdomen. And, and please, I would say, avoid getting oral contrast because that's just time consuming and the patient may vomit anyway with that. Um, and, and just get the stat CTA, which will give you a reasonable idea of what's going on with the bowel, but then importantly shows you the mesenteric blood vessels and the extent of, and location of the clot if it is present. And that also gives you a sense for the options for revascularization. So are the iliac vessels diseased or could you potentially take a bypass off the iliac vessel if you needed to do that? So Britt, you know, the, the timing here would be so important. You, you, you certainly correctly talked about 
ischemic necrosis of the GI tract. What's the, the optimal timing of all of this uh, so we don't launch into something that's going to create more problems for our patient? Right. So I think this is a this is a true emergency, acute mesenteric ischemia. And I think if you suspect it, working quickly towards a diagnosis of that and solidifying the diagnosis is critical. Uh, we think about this like, uh, for example, door to balloon time for the cath lab for an acute MI or time is brain for an ischemic stroke. So this is an acute vascular attack of the abdomen and time is bowel. And really just a few hours can make all the difference between how much bowel is salvageable or not salvageable. And as you suggest, this is a true general surgical emergency. So uh, in many hospitals, uh, the vascular surgeon may not even be involved. So tell us a little about your thoughts about the collaboration between true general surgical approaches and perhaps even endovascular approaches. Yeah, so I think it it depends on the hospital um, uh, setting, of course, and I think uh, you know we definitely value the collaboration between general surgery and, and vascular surgery when when vascular is available to do an endovascular approach. But the uh, the tried and true uh, open surgical approaches, I think, need to be learned and and trained to our residents so that they can do these when they encounter this uh, very uh, serious situation. So I think though in vascular surgery, we have taken a, a lot of times an endovascular approach first to revascularization. I think that's kind of transpired and evolved over the past de- decade or so. And so what this can involve is a percutaneous access, either through the arm or through the femoral region and uh, use a thrombectomy device and or stenting uh, to treat that um, mesenteric artery occlusion. We really don't tend to use thrombolytic infusions because that really takes too long to uh, dissolve uh, a thrombus given the acuity of these presentations. But then I think there are also very good options for open revascularization. Uh, and so if you have an embolus, as I was describing before in the, in the situation of an embolus, uh, that clot is best removed through a transverse arteriotomy on the superior mesenteric artery or the middle colic. And a Fogarty catheter can be passed proximally and distally to remove the clot. And then the artery is sutured up with uh, usually interrupted uh, sutures uh, back, back the way it was. Uh, however, if the patient has a thrombotic problem, that's a little bit different. You can't just pass a Fogarty proximally and expect to um, to treat that problem because that'll only remove a little bit of clot, but really the underlying problem is that severe mesenteric stenosis. So in that situation, you can do a bypass coming off the iliac artery, and this can be configured in what we call a lazy C configuration to prevent kinking. Uh, if bowel contamination is present, though, it's best to use a saphenous vein conduit. Prosthetic is obviously a little bit uh, faster to do so and certainly acceptable if there's not contamination. So one of the things, obviously, to consider also is, is the use of anticoagulants, uh, either acutely or uh, postoperatively. Is there any role intraoperatively for injection of heparin or use of anticoagulants? Is, is this a helpful approach? Yeah, I think we um, we we generally use heparinized saline, which is a you know dilute heparinized uh, solution uh, inside the blood vessels when when we open them. The patient should be fully anticoagulated though from the get go and throughout the postoperative course because whatever caused this is at high risk for happening again. So if they do have a uh, event that occurred from the heart, they're at high risk for getting another uh, embolic event, and that could be a stroke or it could be an embolus somewhere else. Uh, on the other hand, if 
the SMA stenosis was was the underlying issue, then perhaps if that's adequately treated, then they don't have to be anticoagulated in the post-operative period. So I think it's really important to have that that communicate. So it varies depending on the etiology, and it's really important to have that communication between the um, the general surgeons and the intensive care um, unit uh, providers and the vascular um, person to really decide, you know, what's what's going to happen for this patient with regards to antithrombotic regimen. Well, one of the important issues, of course, is to assess the injury to the gut. And of course, uh, making a decision, should we resect? Should we just watch it? Should we put warm pads on? How do we assess uh, what's going on with the gut? Right. So that is very important. And I, you know, I generally... Uh, defer those evaluations. Um, well, I, I, I guess I will put in my opinion, <laughs> like it or not, but I generally do defer those uh, evaluations to my general surgery uh, colleagues because there are a number of ways to evaluate the the bowel, as as I know uh, all, all general surgeons know, and whether that's just Dopplering on the mesentery or um, using a, a contrast agent or um, or simply just evaluating by looking at it for peristalsis and color. Um, but if there's clearly necrotic bowel that needs to be resected, and sometimes that will be left in discontinuity in order to expedite the operation. And then a second look is a very reasonable and probably should be expected in most cases of severe acute mesenteric uh, ischemia, at which point um, at which point the bowel should hopefully be revascularized adequately at that point and definitive uh, decisions can be made as to what's viable and what's not, and anastomoses can be um, successfully created. Excellent points. Well, we always learn the term abdominal angina, you know, in medical schools. So uh, we think about chronic mesenteric disease. Tell us a little about that and its management. Yeah, I, I like the term uh, abdominal angina, uh, synonymous with uh, chronic uh, chronic mesenteric ischemia. So switching gears a little bit now. And uh, this is generally the triad of postprandial pain, weight loss, and food fear, or as I like to uh, like to say, cytophobia, just because I, I like that, that, that word. Um, and uh, this will typically occur more often in women, uh, smokers, uh, in their sixth or seventh uh, decade of life. And they'll typically describe this pain that occurs or fullness sometimes uh, about 20 to 30 minutes after eating. Uh, some patients don't just say, don't call it pain. They'll call it, you know, fullness or early satiety. Uh, however, I think it's, you have to be careful to differentiate that between a lot of other causes for abdominal pain. So pain that occurs immediately after eating with a predominance of vomiting or, or variability with spicy or fatty foods. I think we need to entertain other etiologies such as GERD or gastroparesis or biliary colic. And then of course, you know, if they haven't had any cross-sectional imaging, insidious weight loss and pain can also raise a concern for intra-abdominal malignancy and may require further workup uh, in that regard. That's an excellent point. You know, you, you mentioned uh, about weight loss and of course, historically, uh, we talk about uh, superior mesenteric artery syndrome uh, used to be a cast syndrome. People who had full body casts uh, historically uh, got involved. So is that something that we still tend to see? And what's the management of uh, superior mesenteric artery syndrome? Well, I, I believe what you're referring to with the superior mesenteric artery syndrome is when the superior mesenteric artery compresses the, uh, the duodenum, uh, correct? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that uh, that does uh, come up a lot, and sometimes we get consulted. And I, um, uh, I think uh, you know this is a typically treated with a bowel procedure, not a vascular uh, procedure. Uh, so this involves either a duodeno duodenostomy or some sort of gastrojejunostomy or some sort of bowel surgery that I'm <laughs> retired from. Uh, at any rate, um, but it doesn't. It results from uh, compression of the bowel from the superior mesenteric artery. And this is typically going to be a, a young woman, um, very thin, um, and that that acute angle of uh, takeoff of the of the SMA is just results in a. Uh, dilation of the the, the stomach and the uh, proximal duodenum. So uh, for the most part, we're other than you know sometimes we get called about it. We really don't have to do any sort of or should not do any vascular procedure in that sort of situation. Oh, these are great points. So for the final uh, uh, points of our discussion today, let's transition a little to the renovascular patient, patient with uh, renal artery disease, because you're called upon to see that patient. What about the presentation, the workup? Uh, tell us a little about that. So renovascular disease and the treatment and, and workup of that has really uh, changed a lot over the past uh, decade or so. Uh, first of all, it's a common problem to have renovascular disease in older patients. And, uh, but this doesn't have to be symptomatic. In fact, the symptoms, if you do have renovascular disease, um, maybe things like hypertension or renal insufficiency and less commonly flash pulmonary edema. However, it's very easy to attribute these to the renal artery stenosis, but more often essential hypertension is the cause in uh, older adults. And it can be really hard to kind of distinguish, you know, what is the hypertension coming just from essential hypertension? Is it coming from a renovascular cause? Moreover, renal insufficiency um, may result from poor perfusion from the stenosis, but really there's a number of intrinsic renal diseases or post-renal uh, obstruction uh, problems that can lead to renal insufficiency. Uh, so I think it's to correlate the stenosis with the, the patient disease is, is pretty important. Um, and there's not really any particular uh, symptoms beyond you know, hypertension and renal insufficiency. Let's, let's say we, we've worked up a patient, we're looking for something else, but we do see a stenosis of the renal artery in a totally asymptomatic patient. No hypertension, uh, kidney function seems fine. What should be the approach for that kind of scenario? Yeah, so I think when I, when I was in training, uh, these uh, frequently got, got stented and the intention was to uh, help potentially treat hypertension or prevent, um, prevent congestive heart failure. But over the years, we've learned that that's not really helpful. And so I think the days of drive-by renal artery stenting are really gone. And there were a couple of pivotal trials that really uh, helped to solidify that the medical management for the most part for renovascular disease is more appropriate. So the astral and the coral trials in particular demonstrated that the renal arteries do not need to be stented when there's a unilateral stenosis. In fact, they did not really outperform medical management with um, antihypertensives and um, antiplatelet statin medications with regards to uh, hypertension and uh, renal insufficiency. So I think you know the take home message is that a more prudent approach to intervention on the renal arteries is now advised. So, Britt, before we finish, tell us uh, what are the groups then? What are what is the the groups of patients that you think should be treated for their renal vascular disease? 
Well, it's, it's quite selective these days. I would say um, I've treated younger patients with fibromuscular dysplasia and patients who have a significant renal artery stenosis in the setting of a solitary kidney or a solitary functioning kidney or say a failing renal transplant. And then uh, patients with bilateral renal artery disease that are uh, developing uh, renal insufficiency and or uncontrolled uh, hypertension. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk again with Dr. Britt Tonneson, who's Associate Professor of Surgery in the Division of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at the Yale University School of Medicine. Britt, uh, any final comments before we let you go? No, I just uh, thank you for having me uh, back again. And I really appreciate uh, Lou Flint and, and Rick for putting this together. So I want to thank you for listening in today to uh, our surgical readings from SRGS. Uh, we've appreciated having Dr. Britt Tonneson with us, and we look forward to uh, your listening and learning with us in the future. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag Surgical Readings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.